Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show. Today, we have a very, very special guest, somebody who could easily be the greatest pound-for-pound basketball player in the history of the NBA, Muggsy Bogues. Welcome to the show, my friend. I appreciate you you having me. (laughs) No problem. So the first question I wanted to ask you, uh, in four years, you played basketball Wake Forest. You played in the USBL, you played in the Olympics, and then you still managed to make it into the NBA draft lottery. In terms of getting everything done in a, such a short period of time, I put that four-year stretch, you know, it's really remarkable. Is that something that at the very beginning you set out to accomplish all these different things in a short period of time, or is that just how it all played out? Uh, basically, just all it all it it's basically how it all played out. I mean, um, I didn't feel like it was a short period of time. It felt like it took forever. Um, but that <laughs> was the, you know that was the journey that I was on. You know, the path that I set set myself for. And um, in each level, you know, you gotta you know try to accomplish any whatever those accolades that that particular time is out there. You know, as much as you can, and each step. You know, you got to make sure that you're putting yourself in that position so you can possibly be, you know, in the conversation when it's all said and done, when, when the uh, draft take place. Now, I'm curious what your answer is to this, because I was reading articles from 1987 that spoke about you in such an incredibly high regard, which I was surprised by, because even then they saw the potential and they knew what you could be. Was there a specific turning point that you felt where people went from doubting you to hyping you up in the press? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it always been skepticism. You know, everybody was still in, you know, each level, you know, will he be able to be successful in high school? Will he be able to be successful in college? So each level as I, you know, had faced, you know, I had to prove myself and, and show that you know, it was all. And I think, for me, it never wavered. You know, my confidence never wavered. I knew what I was capable of doing. It was just a matter of the world catching on. And I think once, you know, you get, I got a lot of attention in high school. I got a lot of attention, you know, and, and my, I say my started my second year in college on, but after the USA basketball uh, representation that we was able to go up there and, and win the gold medal, I think that's when the world and more or less the end yeah, and that's what that's the case. I mean, I think, and for me, when people start really taking me serious on the NBA level, it's basically, you know, that journey I was just explaining in terms of, you know, once getting that recognition in high school, of course, and then in college. But once I was able to make that USA team and representing the USA and going over and winning the gold medals with the likes of David Robinson and the Kenny Smiths of the world, you know, we had, you know, the top collegiate players representing, and at that time, you know, winning the gold medal, I think it put me in a light amongst the the elite in terms of NBA eyes, and I and it kind of you know gave me an opportunity where I knew that I belonged, and now it was just a matter for them to all to catch up. Totally, yeah, it's 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 really amazing. Now, do you have any, or did you have any little mental tricks that? you had in terms of, you know, before going into a very high level game or going up against guys who are a lot bigger than you, because I know for boxers, you know, before they go into a fight, 
against somebody who's much larger, they'll tell themselves that they're oftentimes the same size or that they're bigger than their opponent. Did you ever do similar things in your own mind before those sorts of moments? No, not me, you know, because for me, everybody was taller than me. (laughs) (laughs) It had been a stressful day-to-day thing to have to continue to keep telling yourself. But for me, it was more or less me understanding who I was and knowing what my skill set was and what I brought to the table, knowing that how to play against taller players and uh, and how to navigate through them and how to be successful against them. So that was more or less my thinking and my, my mindset in terms of, you know, if I have, if I play against the best, I've had success against the best, now I need to be included with the best, you know, so no matter how tall or short fat you were, that was just my mindset. And, you know, it was always came down for the skill set. You know, we all could be tall and wide and slow and fast, but it always comes down with your knowledge and information and what that skill set provides once you get between those lines. And then that's how I adjust it. And speaking of that, you had one of the highest assist to turnover ratios in the history of the NBA. So obviously the, the knowledge was there. How much of the game do you think, especially in the 90s, was mental versus physical? I love asking guys who played in, you know, multiple decades, that question. Well, that's, in, I mean, no, regardless, no one is going to be immune to that if you're an athlete, you know, that just comes with the territory, you know, it's, it's going to be 60-40, you know, the, the mental part of it is always going to be the part where you got to focus and understand that this is a big part of the game. The 60 part of it, of course, your athletic ability, your, your skill set, you know, got to be in tip-top shape. But that 40% of understanding how to get there and how to stay there and how to overcome and persevere, that's that's more mental. And that's more because that's being challenged more so than the aspect of the more so than the physical aspects of your body, because you're capable of controlling that part. Because you, but it's all about the mental aspect, being standing in the moment, staying, you know, ready uh, and being able to deliver, you know, whatever that case may be, being able to deliver that's always the bottom line and always the outcome of it. And that's how you get you become stars and superstars because of that factor. You know, those are the ones that separate themselves during those particular moments. And, you know, you're able to, you know, persevere. Totally. Now, very specific question. Was it easier or more difficult to steal the ball from somebody that is taller or shorter? Which is easier to, to get, you know, out of their eyesight, get around them? What, did it benefit you? Did you want a player to be taller when you're guarding them to be able to steal it? Or what, what was the situation there? Well, no, well, it doesn't matter for me because it depends on the way you dribble the ball. It makes sense if you're much taller than the course because you're going to have a high dribble. The ball got to come down a lot further. And it's much easier in that regards. Yes, I should say yes. But if you're a small guy and still dribble the ball high, you know, that feeds right into me as well, because, you know, if it ain't waist high now, I could possibly be able to get that. <laughs> now, apart from your on the court roles, you had a lot of cameos and roles in TV shows. One of my personal favorites, which I was just watching before this, you were in Curb Your Enthusiasm like 15 years ago. And I have to ask you about that scene, because I know Larry David likes to do things on the fly he likes to you know not not have scripts he likes it all improvised was that scene entirely improvised or or what did you know about that going in 
Oh, it was all definitely totally improvised. I mean, you just basically give a little storyline and actually what it is, and then you go in and, and do what you do. And uh, and you know, and that told me I was the first, I was the perfect guy for the part. You know, you, oh yeah. <laughs> and you know, of course, Richard Lewis, he was kind of concerned about you know going after an ex-athlete, and you know, in terms of being able to fulfill his obligations to his his new girlfriend. But he was concerned that, you know, coming after an ex-athlete, it's going to be impossible for him to fulfill his obligations that, you know, to cover her needs. So he was concerned and he wanted to catch a peek, I should say. And once he found out, you know, an athlete that was in the bathroom, so, and it just happened to be me. And of course, I caught them peeking and I kind of had a different reaction. <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, now, obviously, I can't mention roles without mentioning Space Jam. What was your experience like shooting that film? And do you have any specific memories from shooting that? Or was it fun? It was a blast. I mean, we had an amazing time. I mean, you think of the cast that we had, the Larry Johnson, the Charles Barkley, Ewan, and Sean Bradley, and MJ. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, not knowing what was going to happen once we got on set. But once we got there and was able to do our parts, I mean, and for me, I was hurt. I just had surgery. So I didn't think I was even gonna make the movie. Um, I thought they was gonna have someone else read my lines, but they told me, come on out anyway. And they kind of created a situation where I didn't have to walk to kind of pull me on the dolly so I can kind of, you know, be able to still be able to do my lines. And that's what I was, you know, we was going through the, through the, through the hospital, through the door when the big guys hit the head. You know, yeah, I had my shoulders, had my shoulders going like I was walking. <laughs> yeah, but we had a great time. It was fun. You know, Larry had an episode on the set. You know, he tried to get a, a haircut from a, a gentleman who never cut an African-American hair before in his life and wound up with a bold cut. So we had to not shoot that scene that morning. He had postponed it to later on that day because he wasn't going on the set looking like the way his hair was cut. That's so funny. <laughs> wow. Now, when when you've played with and against pretty much every NBA legend from that time period, and you've also been around by default sometimes some future NBA legends like your teammate Del Curry's son Stephen Curry. When you were when you were with him, when he was like three to 10 years old. Did you see any of this potential NBA prowess? No, we didn't see none of that. I mean, as a kid, it's hard to kind of see someone at that level. You know, he was just a kid that him and my son and my daughters and his and, and Seth, you know, they were just enjoying being around all the kids. You know, it was many times that they just stayed back in the crown room and didn't come out and watch the game because they was having so much fun. And then all of a sudden they came out you know, when all the noise went down, grab a ball and uh, and just, you know, play, you know, tr uh, just uh, relentlessly all day long. Uh -huh. I was thinking about Steph Curry. Um, you know, Steph, you know, we, we, we never saw this Stephen Curry that we're watching today as a kid. But you knew that he had interest in the game of basketball. You know, he watched a small kid for so long, you know, play at the highest level. And his dad always told him and his son about always watch, you know, how I ran the team and, you know, how I got everybody involved because they was point guards at the time. 
So, you know, they was curious about that and, and being small at that time. And, you know, they couldn't wait till they felt like they could get 5-3 and they feel like they, they make the NBA once they got 5-3. But, you know, that's how kids think when they, you know, seeing someone right. almost at eye level with them. So, you know, but we never thought that this would be, you know, I never saw this coming, but I'm just so happy, you know, that he became the player that he is and as well as the man that he's become, that he's became as well. Because um, I'm enjoying both sides of it. Totally. Now, another teammate, uh, former teammate, Bobol, his son is also now in the NBA. What do you think about his game? And is it at all reminiscent of his father's? Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, this he's a Manute 2.0. Because here it is, you know, Manute, even though he was the shot blocker, but he loved to shoot threes. You know, he loved to shoot his little three ball and, of course, Bobo, he has a step back shoot three point shot that looks very fluent. And the skill set, you know, being able to not only just uh, block shot, but handle the ball, shoot the ball. I mean, he, his dad wasn't able to do all of that. You know, he was more just of an inside presence, you know, rim protector, uh, but limited offensively. <laughs> Okay. Oh, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's a win. That's a win. <laughs> but as I was saying, Bobo has the total package. You know, he your father didn't have this skill set. And uh, and it's remarkable to see, you know, how this game has evolved. I mean, it's a different pl- type of game that we play. You know, seven footers play with their back towards the basket. Seven footers a day, they bring the basketball up the court. So, you know, the skill set has changed tremendously, tremendously. It's so crazy. Now when when you know i'm sure a lot of kids ask you and they reach out what's the best advice you have for somebody who is called undersized or you know they don't they they might doubt even their own skill set i was definitely one of those types of people you know what what would your best advice be for those people who are high school age or younger well it always starts with believing in yourself you got to have total confidence within yourself because you're going to have a lot of naysayers a lot of people trying to dissuade you for being who you want to be and then after that you got to go work you got to go put the time in the effort in you know have to develop that work ethic the way you want to sharpen your skills and understand what position that you are and who you want to be and understand what it takes to be that you know once you have that information and you continue to sharpen your skills then it's all on you um and i always tell a kid that you know it's just like a rapper want to be a rapper, you know, opportunities presents itself, you know, you just need what a studio, you know, and for us, we just need a basketball, you know, and, and you know, for whatever that case may be, take advantage when those opportunities present themselves. And that's how I always looked at it, you know, because, you know, again, no one, I always remember what moms used to say, no one can be an expert on your life. No one know your potential. No one know, and no one can measure your heart. And if you want to play, if you want to, you know, you, you want to accomplish your dreams, you know, have those, have that and look and believe in that, you know, and I always say a dream, vision, passion and action, you know, really leads to success, you know, and having that understanding, I believe you can go a long ways. Totally. And I'm sure that that advice, I know that that advice is applicable to everything, not just sports or basketball, it's applicable to 
business, school goals, literally anything. So everybody, I hope you guys listen closely to that and and play that one back. But uh, I've got a I've got a question that I'm pretty sure you've never been asked before. Now, I'm I know you've been signing basketball cards for years, you know, with Panini and and other companies. Now, what do you think the most a Muggsy Bogues basketball card has ever sold for? Most that a basketball card ever sold for? Of you. Of me, I have no clue. You know, you got the answer to that? I got the answer for you. So the most one recently sold for was over $400. It was a PSA 10 of your rookie. But also, there's one currently listed that's much rarer, listed for $8,000. So the Muggsy Muggsy Bugs card market is very hot. The $8,000? That's there's one listed for somebody might buy it. <laughs> Which one is, is it the rookie card? So that one's not a rookie. That's a limited edition of a okay. from a newer product. Okay. So there are only fifty of those, and that's why it's priced much higher. Of oh. your of your rookie though, I believe there have been about five hundred graded by the main grading company. There are two hundred in PSA ten, so the best condition. And those are the ones that are worth between four hundred to six hundred dollars each. And those are the, the rookie ones. Those are your rookies, nineteen eighty eight Fleer. The eighty eight Fleer. Mm. Man, I, I see why this is a big business out here with the autograph signing. <laughs> yeah. These guys have gotten into okay. It's a, it's a big business. Um, I I love all that stuff. It's so much fun. Oh, that's awesome. Because uh, I'm just. Signed with NFT. Oh, you ju- you dropping an NFT? Yeah, yeah. I just kind of signed a deal with them. And, Amazing. Uh, gonna, yeah, so we're gonna create some uh, some unique situations. I love that. Now, yeah. something else you're talking about creating. You have a podcast. Absolutely, yes. The three lead OGs with myself, Charles Oakley, Earl of the Twirl Curvin, and Ashley Strollum. The lovely Ashley Strode, I should say, she keeps us more in tune and then, you know, keep us out of trouble. Uh, we just had fun with it. Um, we had 13 episodes with the likes of Julius Irvin, uh, Ron Harper, Spud Webb, Candace Parker, I mean, Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady, Adam Lala. Wow. I mean, the list goes on. It, it was, uh, we had an actor from The Wire, Larry. Um, we also had uh gosh who me up dick by the, the the one and only dick Bartel. you know so we got some amazing guests on the show just having some fun with it and i um, look forward to try to continue it on that's so awesome well everybody has to check that out and uh mugsy thank you so much for doing this this was this was an honor uh i appreciate you having me thanks a lot all right everybody we'll see you next time peace